This is Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe. Now, here's Patrick McEnroe. All right, time for another edition of Holding Court. Patrick McEnroe here, and uh, this gentleman is a guy I've, I've wanted to have on for a long time. I, I pick his brain about various topics uh, throughout the years. Um, he's so well-spoken about so many issues, whether it's tennis, baseball, race, politics. Uh, we could go down the list, but I've, I've come to know Howard Bryant through our connection with ESPN. He's written for ESPN. He's been a columnist. He's been a, uh, on the TV shows as well. And, of course, he's a longtime writer for a couple of newspapers back in the day. Uh, I welcome Howard Bryant, who also happens to be a heck of a tennis fan. And, of course, that's at the top of my list, Howard. <laughs> yeah, well, my pleasure being out here. I just want your approval that uh, I went out to go hit the other day, and uh, I'm still using my my Babolat arrow, you know, mm. the Nadal. But I'm I, I put it in the blue strings. I put it in a little a little uh, Luxalon. Okay. And uh, guys told me it's going to be bad for your elbow, but I'm loving it. I got to say. Are you getting the same racket speed on the forehand side? No. Oh. Forty-two hundred RPM money, baby. <laughs> I, I tell you, I mean, you know, I want to get into your thoughts on just where where tennis is overall, and also, you know, just with the pandemic and where all sports go moving forward. But I I want people to understand something about you, and this is when I really realized, Howard. You know, I knew you a little bit. You were always, you know, you, not always, but you were around the majors quite a bit when you were covering tennis for ESPN.com, or I know you worked for the magazine for a while as well, but it was at the French Open, well, I'm going to say six, seven years ago, and I was playing in the Legends doubles, which is a code for the old guys with my brother John, and we're out there, and of course, my brother's still uh, super into it, super competitive. He brought me on, by the way, Howard, because I was on the younger side of the old guys, right? So when I turned 45, he's like, okay, there's a 45 and over. All right, Patrick, now we can play together. So I was like the young now ringer. And then we're out there playing on court Suzanne Longland in front of a couple hundred people. And there you are. I mean, like 11 in the morning, most of the reporters, you know, the journalists are working until late night. So they usually come in late. And there you are watching tennis. The old watching guys tennis. play. You know what? That was my first French Open. I had mm. to soak in everything. And uh, and I'm really, really glad I did. What? And it was fun. I wanted to see you guys play. I, I mean, I just love watching the game, watching the sport. And, and, you know, when people call it the forever sport, it really is the forever sport. You can play it your whole life. And uh, and to be able to see you guys and then to, uh, I'm going to miss the bull ring. Old court one is gone yep. now. And, yep. uh, and so every day that I got a chance to go sit out there is a phenomenal memory. And tell me about just sort of your interest in tennis. I mean, forgetting about the, the, the journalistic side and the work side of it. How did, did you play tennis? Were you into tennis at all as a kid growing up? I know you grew up in the Boston area, correct? In Boston, yeah. Right. And down, down, down the South Shore, down in Plymouth. Mm -hmm. um, tennis is a really, I have a really great relationship with tennis, but a really sad one in a lot of ways, too. It's like you get taken away. Your, your universe either brings you into places or takes you away from them. And I was a huge, and I know your brother's not going to love this, but I was a Lendl guy mm. growing up. And, um, and I will tell you why I was a Lendl guy, because, because Johnny and, and Jimmy Connors and those guys, they won everything, and they kept beating Lendl in majors. And I remember he gave a speech because he wasn't very well liked either, right? Mm -hmm. He was a villain. And I remember there was one speech after he was, he was given the runner-up speech, and he said, maybe 
one of these days the crowd will root for me. Mm. And I was like, I'll root for you. I'm with you. <laughs> and, so, and so I became a Lendl guy. And, um, but the interesting thing was, was that we used to play everything, never took lessons, just loved going out there playing and hitting. And there was a guy in our neighborhood who was a really good player, and you could see it, you know, and, and just used to follow him around everywhere he went. And then we got totally just devoured by Celtics, Lakers, mm-hmm. played basketball, and never really played tennis again mm. until, I mean, watched it, watched it, watched it, but didn't pick up an, a racket again until like 2008. Wow. So you and, so so, what, so sort of your early teenage years and then it was yeah yeah, yeah. that's Great really, school and then tennis and mm-hmm. then high school and then basketball took over everything and I'm five ten what am I thinking yeah right you should have stuck I with tennis shot right. a basketball I mean player. the thing is too about you know that and and we I say we in the tennis world we lose a lot of people around that age you know and people that probably like you you know play play yep. for fun kind of play a little competition but don't get in like big into tournament play. And, right. and when they get, you know, that sort of taste of the team sports and that little camaraderie, that's, that's always been one of the big challenge for, challenges that's for right. keeping ten- people into tennis. And you lose them. And my aunt used to play, and we used to go to see her take tennis lessons. But the kids, we just were out there winging it. We all had rackets, but there was no instruction. We just loved to play. We didn't really know what we were doing. We just loved the game. And I remember, you know, one of my all-time favorite memories, of course, was because it was always back to school. Back to school meant a few things. And, and one of the things it mm-hmm. meant was that 4 that four o'clock U.S. Open final. That right. was one of the big circles on the calendar. And watching watching all those guys play, whether it was, you know, McEnroe, Connors, Martina, Chrissy, all of it. And it was like, it, it, it fascinates me today as a grown-up, the huge missed opportunities because if I had gotten on the court with instruction, I'd have played tennis as much as I did basketball or any other sport. Loved it. Well, the good news is you're back to it, and that's what happens to a lot of people. They get back into it when they get a little bit older. You're still a little bit younger than me, Howard, but you're still you're in your 50s now. But actually, uh, I highly recommend – I'm going to plug my own podcast for you to listen to the Yvonne Lendl podcast, which I just did recently. It just came out. I, uh, I saw you tweet it out. I was like, I yeah, got to listen to this. Absolutely. Yeah, well, well, I'll tell you the one thing you said that reminded um, you, what you said about watching him reminded me of part of the conversation I had with him, which is what he said. You know, I asked him, obviously, about the 84 French final when he came back and, you know, my brother's toughest loss, arguably, of his, of his career from two yep. sets up, lost that match, could, never could win the French again, never have a chance to win the French. But he said he felt that, obviously, he, would, he was going to win one. He was close. He was knocking on the door for a couple of years, as you said, consistently losing in the final. But what he said that prompted him to get better at a couple of things was Connors and my brother. My brother was able to attack his second serve. He he said a really interesting thing about playing Connors is that he knew that Connors' weakness was the low forehand. But for him to play the ball to the low forehand consistently meant that he would have to get on his horse and do a lot of running because Connors could control the the, the court a little more. So he said that's what prompted him to work on the slice backhand to improve his second serve and to get in much better physical condition. It reminds me reminded me a little bit listening to him of what Novak Djokovic went through in a couple of years. Yeah, that he Mm -hmm. realized he was number three. He was right behind Rafa and and Roger. And he he kind of found a way to get even better, to get more focused on what he needed to do to get better. And that's what Lendl did. No, 100%. 100%. And that is the interesting thing. I'm sort of working on this 
piece now about uh, about Nadal and Djokovic and, and Roger to a lesser extent, but mostly those two, and about sort of, I refer to it as debt service. And whereas it was the Connors, Chrissy, Martina, McEnroe, Lendl era that got me into the sport, it was 2007, 2008, Rafa, Roger, Wimbledon, they got me back into it. Mm-hmm. And and I you know and I hate to say this it's going to sound awful especially to a former professional athlete like yourself but I am a dynasty rivalry guy and if a guy feels like they're too good I kind of I don't want to say I lose interest but I was I was losing interest because I I was aging out because my generation was retiring Mac was gone Connors was gone mm-hmm. Lendl was gone and Sampras to me was too good. Mm-hmm. And he was so good, and I didn't love his game the way I love the other guys' game. I started to fade out, and I was watching more of the WTA. And then, of course, when Roger came in, same thing. I was like, he's, I don't see him. It's like watching Jordan. Mm-hmm. I don't see anybody beating him over these next two weeks. Mm. And then comes at 07 final Wimbledon, and then, of course, 08. Right. And then I was back, and I was in for good. And it was like, okay, now we've got something we can watch. Now I've got something. And it wasn't that they were unwatchable before, mm-hmm. but rivalries really bring me in. And seeing Rafa, I remember watching that 08 final. And every point I kept asking myself, and I used to say it out loud, my son was like looking at me. He was like four years old at the time. And I was like, can he slay the beast? Rafa was so close. Right. Can you do it? And, and by that point, it sort of becomes a mental thing. You know, can you, do you have what it takes to not just fight Roger and all of his gifts. Mm-hmm. Now you got to fight Roger's aura and all of that. And now you got to fight yourself. Can I do this? And watching that thing, and I'm sure there are many, many tennis fans who are going to say the same thing, that final brought me in and kept me in. And, 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 and you talking about that reminds me of the look on Rafa's face after Federer won the fourth set in the tiebreak. Yeah. It was a little bit like when, right. my, when my brother won that epic tiebreak against Borg, and you're thinking, oh, there's no way John's not going to win this now. There's no way Federer, yep. after saving those match points, and Uncle Tony, right. you know, with the head in the hands. And I think, <laughs> I think it was Rafa's dad that went over to him and said, hey, you know, wake, get up. And, and the look on the doll's face was like, oh, man, I can't believe I just blew that. But then right. he, found, he found that resilience, right, and that belief to, to, to slay the dragon. To, to slay right. Federer in, in his house on center court at Wimbledon. And that's, you know, if, and, and what if that didn't happen? You know, things that's could have right. been a lot different. And that, that's why we watch sports, right? No, it's true. And you, you coach, you know, you coach at a high level and you played at a high level. And I will tell you, Patrick, I, when I first started playing again and then covering it again, you know, or covering it for the first time. Mm-hmm. I was never quite sure if I believed in belief. Mm. I wasn't quite sure. I was like, okay, is this something that all these guys talk about and it's sort of cliche and maybe not real? It reminds me like when my dad and I used to talk about like Tyson fights. Mm-hmm. And I remember like Tyson, Alex Stewart. And I remember, you know, Tyson destroyed him and, I re- and Michael Spinks as well. I mean, just absolute destruction, first round. And I remember talking to my dad before the fight. And I remember my dad saying, you guys are full of it. These guys are professionals. They're not afraid of each other. He may win or he may lose, but they're not afraid of each other. And I'm like, Dad, look at Alex Stewart's face right. when he's looking at Mike Tyson. He's afraid. Yep. And I thought about this in terms of tennis. I was like, is belief real? It's really real. 
you know, the way you watch tennis and the way you see momentum, there is something in you on a certain point in a game where you either start believing you can do this or when you're kind of not quite sure you can and it all falls apart. It's, it's, it's way more pronounced than I ever thought until you saw it up close at a pro level. Yeah, and definitely you, you, you need the talent and the ability. It's like people – I actually was given a lesson recently, Howard, to a, um, a guy, and you know, a good college player and solid, you know, really into it. And he said, well, you know, what, what was the difference between, you know, you know, my level, which was a solid pro player, but not, at the, not, at, not near the top, you know, 25, 30, 40 in the world. And I said, listen, I said, see, even if I went out, if I went out against Andre Agassi and he was playing well and he was into it, I had no chance. Like, I'd be, yep. yeah, but when you get to, when you get to the words Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, that when, when they're closer genetically, right. And where they yep. could actually put, that's where the belief and that single mindedness or the thing that Lendl was looking for, you're talking about, you, you've got me intrigued now. Tell me a little bit more about what you're, what you're currently working. Cause I know you've written, you've written a couple awesome books on, on baseball and, and, and race and baseball and you know, Boston with that's a whole topic in and of itself we could go on for, I know uh, a long time about, but tell me about what you're working on now as it relates to tennis and specifically Djokovic and Nadal. Yeah, I'm working on two pieces. The first one is really just, it's about this idea of debt service, about what brings you back into the game and sort of the, yeah, as journalists, we're not supposed to be rooting. Uh, and we don't, and I'm not supposed to, and I really don't. However, there is, it is true that Rafa Nadal, watching him, got me into the game, got me getting my son into the game. And watching him this past French Open, I just started thinking in terms of just absolute sorcery. When you look at those numbers, mm you start to take a step back and now you're thinking not just historically in terms of tennis, you're thinking in terms of pure dominance at any level, 102 matches at a major and he's won a hundred of them. That's ridiculous. Yeah. And it's not possible. It's like turning off the video game because your team's losing and then turn it back on. So you get a better chance. It's like, mm-hmm. there's no other way to describe how you can be that good at that level against those other guys. I mean, it's just really remarkable. And the fact that, I mean, the thousand matches, you know, won the, the, all of it. The, the fact that, that it's one thing to win a major 13 times, which is out of control anyway. It's another to have won 13 of those things and to have only gone five sets twice. <laughs> right, right. He went five sets in the first round against Isner in 2011, yep. and then in 20, 2013 he went he went five with Djokovic, right? When Djokovic mm-hmm. touched the net and that turned that that one around nine seven in the fifth, right? And to not even go five is a level of dominance that you know you're you're looking for a new language to describe it. I remember sitting, uh, yeah, I, rem- I, I remember sitting there, not this year, last year, uh, pre-pandemic, when he played an in-form Dominic team, right? And team yep. kept coming in, you know, had actually beaten him at, uh, at one of the lead-up tournaments, best two out of three, different conditions, a whole deal. Yeah. And I remember sitting, Madrid, actually, think, yeah, right? Madrid, I remember sitting in the stands, I was actually watching in the stands, not commentating, just watching as a fan. And in the, the in thinking in the first four or five games of the match, I was thinking to myself, "How is team going to win games, not sets? How's he going to win games? Ga- I mean, the way this guy's playing was, you know, his his 
level on clay courts, I think, has actually improved over the years because he's gotten actually better on faster courts. He's gotten better on hard courts. He's won That's two right. Wimbledons. And most players go the opposite direction. You look at the great clay courts like Lendl, you know, V-Lander. As they got better on other surfaces, they, they got worse on clay because they, yeah, maybe they lost clay. their patience mm -hmm. or whatever it was. And Nadal's actually become an even better all-around player, and that's made him even more dominant on clay. It's just ridiculous to watch. It is. And it's the, the why of it all is what I find sort of fascinating because when you watch his game, the contrast, especially specifically with Djokovic, he hasn't taken a set off Novak since 2013. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at this, it's, it's and, and I, I, I like what you were saying earlier about Lendl and the catch-up that Djokovic had to do, because somebody, of course, after the final was asking, okay, well, okay, okay, now once and for all, he's finally caught Roger, and now we've got to be able to say who's the greatest player of all time, and everyone, of course, is trying to find whatever metric, and my argument has been, you can use whatever metric you want for all three. You can make an argument for each one of them. And one of the things that I found fascinating was the fact that if you go back and look, the, the gap between Roger and Novak and the gap between Rafa and Novak, I think he had, I think, I think Novak was down either nine or ten wins on each of them and mm -hmm. caught them both. Mm -hmm. So what's the, more, is, what, what's the more remarkable story then? I mean, obviously it's still, we're, we're not at the end yet, and there's still a few chapters left to be written. And that's written. the other thing, the chapter's not even yeah, written, exactly. Yeah. I mean, are we in the seventh inning, or are we in the fifth inning? Who knows with these guys? And so obviously with Roger, I think we're in the eighth inning. So, but once again, who thought he was going to win three majors after 17? Right. So, I mean, I, I, when I think about the remarkable part of it, one of the areas that I'm really trying to focus on to try to make sense of it is, just the gap between these two players on the different surfaces. Now, the fact mm -hmm. that, that Rafa has come back on grass and now he's, a, he's, he's proven he can be a second-week player again on grass, that's interesting because, you know, we were both there at the Rizal match and at the Darcy match and right. when, when Dustin Brown got him. And, and, and Rafa himself was like, my knees aren't going to allow me to be a great grass court player again. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly now he, he loses 10-8 to Djokovic in the fifth in a semifinal. So he, he can win another Wimbledon, I think. Uh, but <clears throat> the remarkable thing to me is that it wasn't until the ATP Cup this past January that Rafa even got five games off Novak in a set on hard court since 2013. So the, the gap between those two on the surfaces and then to see him do what he did, I really thought Djokovic was going to win that match. Mm -hmm because I just thought that Novak does so many things that give Rafa problems, and that also Rafa, in terms, of his, in terms of his mental state, like when you watch those guys play, Djokovic, I mean, the difference to me has always been the serve. Djokovic now doesn't work nearly as hard on serve as Rafa's. Rafa's constantly facing game points, but this, this final was, I couldn't believe what I was watching. It reminded me, which, which final, I mean, which uh, semifinal was it? It was Federer. Djokovic at the Australian was it and Djokovic just, yeah Djokovic destroyed just him yeah destroyed him and I yep. was looking at it going it was it was like this and I, I could never I I couldn't even imagine not because I don't not because you doubt Rafa but because Djokovic is still know about Djokovic mm -hmm. and he got taken completely apart in areas that you just didn't expect well the the the, the amazing thing about 
these three players is the way they come back. They've each come back. I mean, That's even right. even Nadal destroying Federer in the I think it was the 07 French Open final. You know, lost four or five games. That they 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 put it they put it behind them. But I want to I want to um, talk about what you said about the services because I find this mesmerizing. The fact that the, the we've talked about how the services over the last 10, 15 years have become homogenized, right? You know, grass yep, is still, the best players are basically still getting to the ladder. So of course, there's a couple of wrinkles, but essentially the, it, it's not that different, right? It's for, you know, Djokovic, yep. Nadal, Federer, they're still the best players. You'll have your, your player, you know, sneak through a Schwartzman on clay, not going to do it on grass, for example. But for the yeah, most part, query with the big guys on grass. Yeah, but even then, you're seeing you know guys you know Karenia Busta doing well on hard courts. I mean on clay. But the amazing thing is the difference that it makes still the surface between the two guys, like you were just talking about, with like like Djokovic and Nadal. If Djokovic plays well on a hard court, I mean, there's almost no way. Nadal can beat him, at least in the recent past. And then you go That's to Clay, right. and obviously Rafa's, you know, in form and got himself going. And it, 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 it totally turns. Whereas for the rest of the field, it basically makes no difference what they play those players. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. And, and the hard part is, is, like, when people said, like, after the final, people were saying back and forth, well, you know, I don't know if this is a fair, you know, how can you talk about Rafa because he's won 65% of his majors on, on you know, at one tournament. And it's like, well, hold on a second. He's also been so damn good that he has held Roger Federer and Novak Djokovic to two French Opens combined. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. The other side of greatness. I mean, when when Federer was in his prime, I'm like, this guy's like one of the greatest clay court players I've ever seen. He was second best for so long. I mean, I think actually over his, well, it's close. I was going to say, who's a better clay court player in their career, Djokovic or Federer? Probably yep. Djokovic, probably close, very close. Where but, it, you, but it's not a it's not a boat race. It's really close. It's really close. Now talk t- talk to me just because I know one of the other topics you're you're interested in is just with with COVID, with the pandemic, and just all yeah. sports in general. Tennis being one of them. I mean, we're waiting to hear as from ESPN. Are we going to go to Australia? Are we not going to go? What's going to happen? So just you know your take overall. I, mean, I know you're a big baseball guy too, and we've seen. What they've had to go through, football seemingly is, you know, getting through. They, of course, have the most resources, the most money behind them. But what's, you know, where do we, where, where are we going to be in a year? Yeah, that's the second issue that I'm working on now. I think I'm going to have it ready for the year end, or like at the year end, you kind of encapsulate where we've been. And you know, I talked to Joe Madden, the manager mm-hmm. of the Angels, and. He, we were talking about all kinds of different stuff, and one of the things that he was saying was he kind of viewed 2020 as a throwaway year. You know, you, you had the spring training, then everybody got sent home, then you did the 60-game thing, so it's really, really difficult to evaluate what to make of the year. And so he's like, I kind of look at this with a, look at this year with a grain of salt. It's kind of a throwaway year. But then when you start thinking about policy and you start thinking about what's going to get incorporated and what's not, this year is not a throwaway year at all. This mm-hmm. year is an incredibly pivotal year mm. in terms of, when you have a year that you think is, okay, it doesn't really count. We're just hoping to get everybody on the field and we're going to try to, to recoup something. Now is the perfect time to experiment. And I think that we've seen that more in baseball than any of the other sports. And in baseball, now you're starting to see some of the stuff that baseball really wants. Baseball would love 
regional realignment. And you saw that during mm-hmm. COVID. Suddenly right. you saw a whole bunch of interleague play and nobody was going across country. And that's one of the things that's been on the table for years. And COVID is letting people know that baseball is not adverse to uh, an American, I'm sorry, an American League East or whatever, they changed the name right. of the division, right. but a division with the, with the Yankees, the Mets, the Phillies, the Red Sox, and the Blue Jays, all in the same division. And that you've got, a, you've got a California division of the A's and the Giants and the Padres and the Dodgers. Yeah, inter, and interleague play was sort of like the start of that, inter, right? It was like tipping their, ex- their, exactly tipping their right. feet in the water. Ex- yeah. Exactly right. That's one of the things that they really kind of want. It's been an argument that I've made for years with the, with the players. Every year, I, I always ask the question, if you play 162 games and you get to that wild card game and you play one game mm. and lose, do you feel like a playoff team? And so the fact that they came in this year and decided that they were going to do a best two out of three, I like that. I like that a mm-hmm. lot. And I remember talking to Bud Selig about this, and he said, oh, we could never, ever do that because you can't have a playoff series where one team doesn't get a home game. And I'm like, why not? <laughs> right, right. Where are the rules that say you can't do that? Okay. It, it, exactly. I, I, I what would you rather have? We could go on about baseball, but we got to finish with tennis, and I want you to tell me where you think um, – tennis should go what what if any i mean because you know there's a lot of talk early on but you know the men's and women's tours coming together i've always been a believer that the tennis ranking system should be more like golf so it's spread out over a couple years for example that's implemented okay so we'll see if that how that turns out um but what about the idea you know the, the idea of sort of you know, almost like golf, separate tours, the European tour, the North American tour. What do you think? If, and, and at the moment, by the way, I'm not seeing any changes coming about. But what, what, no, what do you think should the, and could happen? Well, I think the biggest area to pay attention to, at least for me, because, you know, I'm a big labor guy. You watch, I think, everything. As Don Fear told me a long time ago, it's not Red Sox-Yankees. It's owners versus players. Mm. So I think that the big thing we're going to see is what happens with the you know, with the new union that Djokovic is pushing and what's going to happen with the, with the ATP and do you incorporate women into the tour and mm-hmm. what, is going to, uh, what, what is that going to look like structurally? I am still a huge believer that best of five is the way to go, but I also feel that the television pressures to go to two out of three, I, I don't love that at all. Uh, I think the biggest thing to, to, to really watch out for, we saw it with Davis Cup, we see it with Labor Cup, is the schedule. Mm-hmm. Is how much room, and with ATP Cup, is there room to create something different, or can all of these different bodies come together to give you something a little bit more streamlined? Um, tennis is going to be real interesting the next two, three, four years. You think those players that, uh, you know, between 150 and 400 will ever see, you know, the type of money that, that, that players in other sports see? I mean, obviously, tennis is so top-heavy as far as uh, yep. who, who gets the prize money. I'm all, I'm all for Federer, Nadal, Serena, and so on, making huge money as they do in endorsements. But I've always felt that the prize money distribution should be streamlined in a, in a manner similar to the golf tour. What do you think about that? That's right. I, I couldn't agree more. And it goes back to you got to play somebody, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is the whole thing. And I think, what, is, what are the numbers, Patrick? Everyone has told me that if you're 55 and over, you, you're not even breaking even. Uh, you're I mean, talking about that, as, a, as a player? As a player. Uh, probably a little lower than that, but I mean, it, it, it a little bit depends on where you're from. You know, so if you're the yeah. number one player from, uh, 
I'm making it up, New Zealand, or you know, and and yeah. and you can make more money if you're the number. Now Italy's got a whole bunch of uh, great uh, sure male do. players, but you know, ten years ago, you know, if you were Fabio Fognini, for example, he's obviously yep. been a top ten player. But if you were Fognini in his early years, where he was thirty, forty in the world, he'd be making a huge living based on that's right because he was number one mm-hmm. in Italy. Now, if you're Sam Query. And you're 30, 40 in the world, and you're American, and you're not—you don't really move the needle in your country. People don't know who you are. I'm using him as, as an example. You know, you're not yep. making huge money unless you're at the top, top. So I always argued that you know, I always took a guy like David Ferrer, you know, perennial five to ten, fifteen in the world. Thomas Burdick, a guy who, if he was an NBA player or um, an MLB player, would be making yep. huge money, right? But in tennis. Okay, they make. I'm not saying they don't make a good living. They make a great living, but they're not comparatively at the same level as those players from others. Even golf. Now, obviously, you That's know, right. soccer mm-hmm. and football obviously bring in more revenues in general over the world. So I get that part. I'm just saying the distribution factor is a lot different in tennis. Yeah, I think the measure really is going to be: is it a Washington Generals kind of thing? I mean, one of the arguments that people say to me all the time is. Tennis has become far too predictable, at least on the men's side. You know who's going to be there come final weekend. And if that's the case, then how do you create incentive to, to have this sort of structure where 200 in the world is worthy of the money that you're going to give them? Or is everybody just the Washington generals for the, for the Federers and the Nadals and the Djokovic's of the world? Right. It, well, that system seems unsustainable. As, as always, Howard, and I've had you on when I've been on ESPN radio a few times, and, and, but luckily in my podcast, you know, we can go on as long as we want, but I try to keep it between 25, 20, 25. Of course, we've already gone 30, but I always feel, 334. I, I, yeah, I always feel smarter when I talk to you because you bring up so many things and I know you and I have talked to offline about the racist issue in these country in this country and what's going on with that we we i want to do another one with you where we just talk about that politics well you know everybody's on me on twitter don't don't talk about politics (laughs) or don't go there but i feel like you know what with you i could go there and i'd be i'd be okay yeah well call anytime i think one of the things that we did talk about before we got on the call and i'll say it again is that I don't measure. I don't measure what this year has been compared to all the other years. I compare mm-hmm. it to where we were the last week of March and the last week of March, early April. It, the the feeling was we're not going to have any sports at all. So despite mm-hmm. George Floyd and despite the pandemic and despite everything else, the sports world gave us something this year, and I think mm-hmm. that should be celebrated too. And by the way, at the end of March and early April, I was in my basement. Uh, quarantining because oh, I, I, yeah, exactly. I and that and that's where I decided I better start this podcast because I had this machine you know, that I'm talking to you on. <laughs> so finally I did that. So something good for me came out of it, and even better being able to talk to you for an extended period, Howard Bryant. I appreciate your time. I always appreciate um, speaking with you, and thanks for all your support of tennis. No, my pleasure. Call anytime, Dad. You got it, man. Take care, Howard Bryant. Everyone. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media.